Hey friends, Dustin and Zach here from the Retro Game Guys podcast. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing legendary video game programmer Warren Davis. Warren has a long list of accomplishments in the video game industry, including programming the 1982 arcade hit Qbert, which is one of the most popular arcade games of all time. Warren also developed digitization technology that was used to create the iconic visuals in Mortal Kombat, Terminator 2 the arcade game, Revolution X starring Aerosmith, and the only game that I have unofficially beat Zach at, <laughs> uh, Narc. Uh, <laughs> in 2018, Warren was inducted into the International Video Game Hall of Fame alongside a couple of other legends that we've had the pleasure of interviewing, Howard Phillips and David Crane. Warren also has a book titled, You Can't Call It or whatever that was my attempt at the uh, vocalizing the Hubert swear uh the, <laughs> but the uh, the subtitle of that book is stories from a life making video games with that let's go to zach as he kicks off our interview with warren davis all yours zach warren welcome to the retro game guys podcast thanks for being on well thank you guys for having me i'm happy to be here awesome well i hope you're staying well during this crazy time so far so good you know i uh I, I've only had uh, one test so far. That was back in September, and I was negative. Uh, um, I'm living with uh, my wife, and uh, one of my sons is living with us right now. And oh, yeah. they both got recent COVID tests, and they were both negative. So we're all we're all uh, theoretically in good health. There that is go. good to hear. You'll never smell the same after that test, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dustin it was and fun. <laughs> well, Dustin and I are really excited to talk to you, Warren, because like many of our listeners, we grew up in the arcades of the 80s and 90s, and we played a lot of your games. And I know we all sunk our fair share of quarters into Qbert back then, so we're definitely <laughs> excited to talk to you about that amazing game. But let's go ahead and start with your book. Uh, you recently released, you can't call it Qbert Noise. I'm not going to do what Dustin just did, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, chronicles your many achievements in the arcade industry. But our first question for you, why did you write this book and why now? Um, so the book has actually a long gestation period. It's, it's been, it was in the works for a while. Uh, yeah, I started going to the retro gaming shows um, a few years ago. I mean, I, I, my first retro gaming show, I believe, was 1999, mm. uh, the Classic Gaming Expo in yeah. Las Vegas. Uh, that was the only, I mean, I just thought that was an amazing thing. I, I wasn't even aware that, you know, retro gaming shows were a thing. I, it was just, wow, why would anybody be interested in those old games? <laughs> they just seemed like they happened so long ago. But uh, uh, I was invited back a couple of times over the next few years, uh, always had a great time. Uh, and it sort of forced me to go back and think about those days because honestly, I had mm -hmm. put that all behind me. I just was moving on mm -hmm. to other things. Um, and then even later, um, more recently in this decade or the, the, the decade that's about to end, uh, I was invited, I started getting invited to more of these shows and again, always enjoyed them, had a great time prepared talks, you know, at first I, they were just off the cuff talks. And then I realized, you know, what I'm doing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm have to entertain people for an hour. I'm, <laughs> I, I didn't want to be boring. So uh, I actually started preparing the talks, making them audio visual uh, events uh, and with a, with a flow and things like that. And uh, I just started collecting all these stories. Uh, the other thing, the side thing of the, of going to those retro gaming shows and telling these stories is I would run into old colleagues oh yeah which yeah. was always great and we'd get together and we would tell old stories to each other and there were stories i'd be like oh my god i'd forgotten all about that so uh 
the more I did this and the more I came up with different aspects of my career to talk about, uh, I just realized there were so many stories. So I, I started to think about writing a book. I just thought it'd be nice to collect them all in one spot and have it and just, you know, uh, just leave it for posterity, basically, because I'm not right. going to be around forever to tell all these stories. And I, I could tell them a lot better and in more detail in a book than I can in a 45 minute talk. So that that's the answer to why. That's why I wrote the book. And uh, when I when I made that decision, <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't say I made that decision. Making that decision was a two year process. I mm. uh, <laughs> I had the idea to do it, and then you know when you when you write a book, it's really weird. But you actually you know, like you have to sit down and 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 write it. You have to like, put the words down <laughs> and type them, and then reread them and make sure they make sense. Uh, it's a really uh, laborious process. So, yeah. uh, the, the writing of it took some time, uh, a couple of years, uh, mm-hmm. and I just attacked it chapter by chapter and eventually it was ready. And <laughs> that was, that was last year. And then, you know, then there's a, the, I don't know if anybody's ever published a book by themselves, but you know, you, you know, there's the layout, there's the cover design, there's right. Finding Mm -hmm. a printer. There's there's all these other things which I I I just enjoy doing. It was an interesting challenge, and I I enjoy doing it. So, um, the book was actually ready about a year ago, and my thought was I would take it to shows with me. Be happy to sign it for people. Um, Really, just wanted to spread the word around and and let people you know have access to these stories. And then COVID happened. Yes. (laughs) So. So, uh, you know, I've been pretty much cooped up, but I, I was able to set up uh, an online store uh, and I have been um, selling copies to people who are interested. The, the beautiful thing about the online store is I can, if people want an autographed copy, I can sign it and, uh, mm-hmm. and send them a, an That's actual awesome. signed copy. Um, awesome. the, the newest wrinkle, which uh, literally is so new that, that I, it's not, it hasn't even happened yet. It's breaking news. All right. You're breaking news on <laughs> our podcast. <laughs> but and, and and I have to say this with a grain of salt because it hasn't happened yet. It's not a done deal. But there is a good possibility that there's an actual publisher, uh, like a respectable publisher, <laughs> who who's interested in publishing it. And nice. uh, wow. And so, you know, I, I, I'm in talks right now. And if that uh, if that goes through, then I have to stop. Uh, selling the book myself because it, it will become the publisher's job and and it won't be ready for another year. So there's a very good possibility that uh, I will, I will not be selling this book, uh, you know, in the near future, but yeah. uh, uh, you know, if anybody is interested um, you know, you are welcome to try to come to my site. Uh, it's also on Barnes and Noble if you want to look it up there. Um, but uh, right. it may very well be taken off the market. No, there you go. Well, first of all, Warren, congratulations. That sounds exciting. Really, yeah. good luck. Crossing thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It is Great. exciting. It's also a little daunting and and a I'm little sure. a little disappointing. I I I I told the, the the publisher that it's it's a bitter pill to swallow to have to sit on it now for a year, uh, yeah. and uh, but uh, it'll it'll come out of it much better. I believe uh, it'll it'll have a farther reach, and uh, working with a publisher will will mm, I you know 
there'll be some changes to the content that yeah, I think will make absolutely. it an even tighter, better book. They have to set it up for the movie too, right? So that's, <laughs> that's, that's part of what yeah. you're working on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So where can, what is your site? How can people get that uh, now limited edition copy of your book? <laughs> uh, the site is uh, Warren Davis shop, which is all one word dot square dot site. Okay. Warren yeah. Davis shop dot square dot site. You or you can go to Barnes and Noble, like you said. Um, that's where I got my copy of your book. Thank you for that. And personally, yes. I got to say, Warren, I really enjoyed your book. Um, so I read it cover to cover in pretty much one sitting. Um, wow. And it really, it really brought me back to that my favorite era of arcade gaming. I mean, it really put me right back there. Um, so a warning to our listeners, if you get Warren's book, just make sure you don't have any plans for the rest of the day because <laughs> you're going to be busy and there's really there not a easy place to stop because you just want to find out what happens next. So again, thank you, Warren, for that. And congrats, congrats on the news. Thank you. So the title of your book, uh, it's a reference to what Kubert was almost titled. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. The, and the story, of course, is in the book. But uh, you know, when, when uh, you know, Kubert was developed, and I don't know how much you know about this, but Kubert was developed uh, uh, sort of as a back burner project. It sort of crept up. Uh, management wasn't even aware of it at first. I, it was just a programming exercise for me, uh, which evolved into a game. And, mm. uh, and it being my first game, I, I you know, wasn't thinking about a backstory or, you know, uh, uh, a name for the game or a name for any of the characters that, that was the last thing on my mind. You know, I just wanted to, uh, you know, write the program and, and end up with a game that was fun that people would enjoy. Um, so when it came time to name the game, uh, you know, we had the, we had the game was pretty much there, but the character didn't have a name. Uh, and Howie Rubin, who was our uh, VP of business development, Howie was uh, an out-of-the-box thinker, uh, an, a, an amazing uh, inspiration in a lot of ways, because he just set the tone for the mm -hmm. department. Uh, and he wanted to call the game that cartoon balloon that Kubert says when he gets hit on the head or dies. And we were like, well, you know, it's a cartoon balloon. It, <laughs> how do you pronounce that? It's, you know, blah, 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 right. And, and even in the game, it's just gibberish. You yeah. know, Dave Thiel, who did the, the sounds, you know, just created gibberish. So uh, we, all of us, and uh, Jeff Lee included, who is the, the artist who created all the characters, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we all just said, you, you can't call it that. <laughs> and he was like, we can. And, and we said, but Howie, how are, if people like the game, what, you know, how, if they want to talk about the game, what are they going to call it? He said, if they, if this game is as good as, as I believe it is, they'll find a way. <laughs> we don't need a name. <laughs> this was exactly, this was, this was Howie's uh, words of wisdom. And, and we actually did print, uh, you know, I think about a dozen cabinets or marquees to put on cabinets uh, to put out on test with that cartoon balloon as the name. Uh, those are collector's items now, but uh, I have one actually, but they, they also print them now. So I don't even know if it's even possible to tell uh, an original from a, from, hmm. from a, a repro, but they, they are reproed and you can get them. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the story uh, of how Kubert got his name. Well, that's that's the story of how Kubert didn't get his name, but mm -hmm. it's a story about how my book got the name. <laughs> there you go. That's really interesting. So there's some collectors out, out there right now that are freaking out, going like, oh my gosh, I, I want one of those. That's really interesting. <laughs> oh, you can find them. Yeah, they're out there. 
So let's go uh, back a little ways to your formative years. So what is it that drew you into video games in general? And ultimately, what made you want to create games? Wow. Well, uh, what got me? Well, you know, the video games didn't exist when I was a kid. <laughs> if you can imagine that. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in the days of television. Um, and which always makes me think of this line from The Princess Bride, where uh, Peter Fox playing the grandfather and he says to Fred Savage, you know, when, when I was your age, television was called books. That's right. <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> for me, <laughs> when I was your age, video games were called television. There you go. Um, uh, and when I was in college, I was a computer uh, engineering major. Uh, I was fascinated by computers. I wanted to understand what made them tick. I wanted to be able to build them. Uh, and even in high school is when I was first exposed to computers, which was pretty rare in, in those days. There weren't a lot of computers in high schools, but uh, my high school had a computer that was the size and shape of a desk. Yeah. And I was in charge of that computer uh, from my, I, I think I apprenticed in my sophomore year and my junior and senior year, I was the head of the computer lab. So uh, I got to know this one computer. And even then, the thing that fascinated me, I think more than anything else, was the use of the computer as a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I would program this crude computer that actually didn't have a CRT screen, for one thing. You communicated via a typewriter, an actual typewriter. <laughs> so you would type and it would print and, and then it would type back, like, you know, by itself, mm -hmm. pressing the keys. Uh, but I, you know, I made, I made games out of it. I just tried to make like fun little games. And, and when I went to college, even then uh, I would choose some sort of a game project every opportunity I could. So uh, being fascinated with the use of computers as entertainment devices when video games came out, which was my, I think my junior, late, late, in, or not junior, my, my freshman year of college, uh, I think it was when I first saw a video game. Uh, I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to do that. I want to <laughs> yeah. do that so bad. But I didn't know how you would get a job. Like, I mean, it was really uh, unclear to me how it was even possible to get a job like that. One of the things I read in your book that was was really funny, and I don't want to give away too much of your book, obviously, because people need to read the book. But what uh, <laughs> got a twist ending, right? You did. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, you created a one of your early projects was a was a calculator with attitude. You wrote in the book, and I thought that was really funny. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Well, you know, it was just uh, so, it was so silly. It was such a ridiculous thing, but it was basically, you know, you would you would type in some sort of simple arithmetic thing. Like you'd, you'd want to add two numbers and you know, it, it might say something like, why? <laughs> that would be the answer. Why? You know, or, well, that's stupid. Like different numbers. I, you know, it was just, right. uh, and again, it was just me being, being silly. Yeah. When you think back to that time, what lessons did you learn? Did you take away from like working with limitations? Of course you didn't, I'm sure you didn't think they were limitations back then, but looking back, did it teach oh, you yeah, something? Yeah, we did. We, I think everybody working in that industry realized we were working in limitations. Absolutely. Yeah. Although uh, I do think we also felt very blessed that we weren't working in the home industry because you want to talk about limitations, you know, right. programming on a 2600 for a cartridge of an Atari 2600 cartridge. Holy crap. I, I don't think I ever would have wanted to do that. That, that would have been too much for me. Uh, you know, we, uh, 
you know, what, what we had the souped up hardware that had 16 colors, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, listen, it's, I think it's been that way uh, ever since video games started. I think it's that way now. People push whatever they have. They push those resources to the limit. Uh, I just yep. think that's the nature of any art. I think it's the nature of filmmaking. I think it's the nature of music. You know, you, you yeah. use the tools at your disposal and you, you try to push it to the limit. Yeah. The other thing I think all of us in the industry knew was that uh, something was just around the corner, an improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew that memory was going to get uh, bigger and cheaper. We knew that processes were going to get faster because uh, this was the way the industry was going. You know, we knew that uh, circuitry was getting smaller and you could pack more transistors. So, uh, you know, we knew that whatever the limitations we had in that moment, we kind of knew that six months or a year down the road, we were going to get something better. Uh, and I think because of that, we were always dreaming bigger. We we're yeah. always thinking, what can we do next? What were you guys we already talking Moore's law back then? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Things? That yeah. was a thing back then. Yes. Yeah. Well, you talked earlier about, you weren't sure how you'd get a game, a job in games, mm -hmm. but in 1982, you did get a job in games. You joined Gottlieb in Chicago and uh, Gottlieb was traditionally a pinball manufacturer. And here you were you're joining a newly formed video division. So what was it like being one of the new guys and uh, one of the new video guys? Yeah, it wasn't like brand spanking new. I think it had been around for like maybe a year or so, um, but uh, it was fairly new uh, and it was still sort of like a very small group. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe the, the entire company and that includes sort of like clerical staff and support was maybe 20 or 25 people tops, you know, there were just a few engineers, a few designers, uh, not game designers, but like hardware designers. Um, yeah, it, it was a very small company. And uh, I, I came in again, not at the very, very beginning, but close to the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So it was, I mean, being the new guy was great. Uh, everybody was, you know, very nice. And the, the, like I said, Howie, I mentioned Howie and, the other guy who ran the department was Ron Waxman, who was the VP of engineering. And those two guys uh, really sort of set the tone um, for us to just to let us loose. Cause they, they realized they didn't know what a good video game was. It was a mm. new business mm. for them. Yeah. Uh, Gottlieb had licensed two Japanese games and produced them with, uh, in their manufacturing plant. But they had yet, when I was hired, they had yet to come out with a single in-house developed game. But when I was hired, uh, it was very close to the release of Reactor. Close, not okay. a few months before Reactor mm -hmm. was uh, hitting the assembly line. So while you were at Gottlieb, you hit a home run mm. <laughs> with Qbert. And you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, how Qbert started as kind of a programming exercise. Um, any other stories from the development of Qbert that you want to share and how that evolved a bit before it became, you know, truly a reality? Well, I mean, the thing, you know, honestly, I, I always feel, <laughs> I always feel that the creation of Qbert is, is, it's a somewhat boring story. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, I mean, people are interested in it and I love to tell it. I'm happy to tell it to anybody who wants to hear it, but it's not that exciting. Uh, it started as a programming exercise and it was what I would call uh, an evolutionary design. And what, by, what I mean by that is, you know, I didn't know anything really about making video games. I had, I had worked a little bit on, um, on, a, on a game 
called, uh, well, it had many names. Uh, I call it Providgard Argus because it had the names Protector, Video Man, Guardian, and finally Argus, and it was never released. But I worked as a supplemental programmer helping out the main programmer slash designer, Tom Malinowski. Uh, so I learned a little bit about the hardware, but I really didn't do much. Uh, and I wanted to teach myself more things uh, like for example, gravity, because uh, nothing I did in, the, in uh, ProVidGuard Argus had gravity. Uh, and so, you know, and randomness. So those are the two things that got me started. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, I started developing just uh, this thing to, to test out pro, uh, randomness and gravity. And uh, eventually I had the, the pyramid with balls bouncing down it and people would look at it and go, wow, that's pretty cool. I go, okay, well, geez, I guess, you know, if you think of the pyramid as a play field, uh, you know, I need a player to jump around. So uh, I, that's when I went to Jeff Lee and Jeff Lee had a whole bunch of characters he designed and, you know, he might've had plants for them, but nobody else was using them. So I asked if I could use them and he said, yes. And uh, yeah, I picked the sort of like pathetic looking orange guy with the big <laughs> nose as the player and uh, off we went. Um, so yeah, it was a, it just every time I programmed something then I would stop and go, okay, well, what should I do next? And literally that's how the game developed from start to finish. There was never any master plan. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. And how long was that, that uh, whole period of, of programming Cubert? How long did it take you? I want to say I started uh, toying with it in either March or April of 1982. And I think by you know, August or September, it was ready to go out on test. Mm. Wow. So I, you know, um, I, I think the core development time is maybe four, five months, something like that. Was there a defining moment when you realized that Qbert was going to be a smash hit? Um, was it something you realized early on, or did it take a, a while? Um, yeah, I'm not. Sh I'm not sure when that was actually. I I, I know that everybody uh, in the office was excited about it. They all loved it and thought it was going to be a hit. Um, I think when we put it out on coin test and it collected over a period of weeks, cause that was something we did in yeah, the arcade yeah. industry with new games. We put them out in an arcade, an actual working arcade. And yep. we would, you know, the, the operators would uh, give us coin reports back uh, every week. So I think when it was um, collecting well, people then knew. Uh, and then we took it to a trade show, the uh, AMOA in, uh, I think it was November of 82 is in the fall. Uh, that's like the biggest industry trade show for coin op machines and video games had pretty much taken over that, that uh, show. Uh, and it was, you know, many people rated Qbert the, the hit game of the show. So uh, I think at that point I, I was pretty, pretty sure we, it was, it was going to work out. <laughs> That's great. One of the really unique features that you added to Qbert, which I thought was really interesting was you added a pinball knocker to the game. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, for our listeners who don't know what a pinball knocker is, what is it and, and why did you add it? Uh, sure, I, I can talk about it. I can't take credit for it though. Uh, the, the idea came from one of our engineering technicians named uh, Rick Tai, mm. and it was his idea. He just thought, you know, Kubert's falling. What if there was a, like a pinball knocker at the bottom of the cabinet? So we, we said, well, let's try it. It sounds like a cool idea. So um, I programmed in what I had to, to make it work and uh, listened to it. But I have to say I was very disappointed because it hmm. was not the sound I wanted. I, I, I'm thinking here's Kubert's a body falling and I want to hear a thud. Right. I want to hear like a, 
<laughs> I, mean, I don't know like how realistic, splat. but yes. I want to hear something that sounds <laughs> kind of like a body. Uh, <laughs> I, I would describe it as like a sack of potatoes, maybe. Right. Um, and this is like a knock, like somebody knocking at the door. So I, I was disappointed. Um, and then, you know, we kind of kicked around uh, ideas of what we could do. And then someone came up with the idea of taking a piece of foam. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the ends, uh, well, maybe you never even knew, but uh, uh, chips, uh, like uh, integrated circuit chips would come yeah. in these long plastic tubes. And there'd be these little foam pieces that, that would stick at the end to block, to stop them from sliding out. And we mm -hmm. put a little piece of foam where the knocker hits and the sound was perfect. It was like, oh my God, that's it. So we went nice. to management and we said, oh, this is, you gotta, you gotta let us put this feature in. And uh, they were like, oh, we don't mind putting the knocker in, but we can't put in the foam because of the labor involved to, to just perfectly place this foam and glue it <laughs> and maybe blah, blah, blah. And for somehow that was going to add like $15 to the cost of the wow. game. And that was too much. And anyway, they decided not to go with the foam but to go with the knocker. So yes, it's a very cool feature. I'm, you know, very gratified. People like the feature, but I know how much better it could have been. And I, I do suggest to people they try it. There you go. If you, if you own a Cubert, yeah. So if you're curious what that sounds like, that just the knocker sounds like is it, that's a sound as if you're playing, when you're playing a pinball machine and you get like a free game, you'll hear that, like you said, like a knock on the door. Um, but that's, that's a real creative yeah, there it use is. of yeah. that. So let's talk about the ports of Qbert for a minute. So you mentioned that you, uh, you consulted with a few of the programmers that brought Qbert to home consoles. What would you say is the best or most faithful port of Qbert? Well, the one that I liked the best was the ColecoVision. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it just felt like it looked the closest to Qbert. It looked, uh, it played the closest. Um, yeah, I just felt all the others were pretty much lacking. There may have been one other that was pretty close, but uh, ColecoVision is the one I, I always like the best. That is a really good version of that game. In fact, more people need to play the ColecoVision in general. It's just great graphics, especially for the time. That's such mm -hmm. an amazing system. It just needs more, needs more attention, I think. We all know the Atari, but uh, yeah, check out the ColecoVision. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only uh, home game system I had back in those days. Okay. ColecoVision. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm kind of on a collector kick with ColecoVision right now. Not, not <laughs> oh, good. Either. Another one you're yeah, collecting yeah, another for. Another one, right. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a sickness. Uh, speaking of Atari, though, you, you talked about the Atari 2600 version very briefly in your book. I think you said something like ick or yuck or something like that. So maybe is that the probably your least favorite <laughs> port? Of well, you know, come on, just look at it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I'm one. I'm going out on a limb there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're no. staking your you're not staking your reputation on this on this wildly you know uh, out of left field. Uh, <laughs> and and listen, opinion. I mean, please, I want to be very clear. I uh, you know props galore to whoever had to program that. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, again, you're you're trying to you're trying to make a game do something on a system that it was never designed to do. Yeah. I mean, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred really was not intended to you know, to display cartoon graphics like, like Hubert. So, and, and uh, I think uh, I talk about this in the book as well, that, you know, the arcade industry was always looking for a way to stay ahead. Right. You know, mm -hmm. we, it, we always felt we, we had to be better than the home systems. Cause if the home system started catching up, well, why would anybody go into the arcades if they could play, have the same experience at home? Mm. Uh, and yeah. granted there's a social element that cannot 
necessarily be replaced, but uh, at home, but, totally agree. but still, you know, we were always trying to stay one step ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That was my introduction to Qbert, by the way. So I had Qbert on the 2600 growing up, played the heck out of it, wrestling with that Atari 2600 controller, which wasn't the most accurate thing in the world. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th- I think many, many people were turned on to Qbert by that version, mm. which you know, may or may not make you happy in a way, right? <laughs> they should really play the real deal. Listen, but, people love Cubert. Yeah. I'm happy that anybody loves Cubert. I, I, it doesn't matter to me what, what system you played. That is awesome. That is awesome. So I think, you know, some of our listeners are probably thinking, man, you know, because we all know Cubert was a, a smash hit, you know, not just in the video game world, but it's, you know, in popular media and all of that. Um, so people might be thinking, you know, this guy must have made a billion dollars from Cubert's success. <laughs> Um, but most uh, programmers didn't get a big slice of the pie back then, right? Well, I mean, it depends. You know, uh, there were certainly uh, people who did make a lot of money. Uh, at Gottlieb, I would say there probably was not, not anybody <laughs> like that. And uh, I don't know monetarily, like, for example, what Tim Skelly's deal was, but he was hired uh, with a track record and he was hired to be a mentor to the department. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure he must've gotten some sort of a deal with royalties, et cetera. But me as a, you know, completely new programmer, mm-hmm. not only did I sign the standard form that everybody had to sign saying that whatever I create while I'm at the company is the property of that company. Yeah. Uh, I mm-hmm. had to sign that, but also Gottlieb did not have any royalty program for their designers at the time. Uh, and in fact, they created one eventually after Mach 3. So that, you know, the, the only hits that really Gottlieb ever had was Qbert and Mach 3. Those were the two <laughs> biggest selling games. Uh, they did not have royalties in place until after that, and they were not retroactive. So uh, um, convenient. Yeah, but I, I, I did get a bonus. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't that large. It wasn't life changing, but uh, it, I appreciated it. Um, mm. Listen, I, I wasn't a I, I wasn't then and I'm not now like all about the money. I right. I, I mm-hmm. did it because I enjoyed doing it and I was thrilled to have the opportunity to do it. I was so grateful. Um, awesome. but yes, it was nice to have, you know, to get a little thank you check. That's great. <laughs> there you go. Well, certainly, I mean, when you talk about thank yous, I'm sure there's many people that have said thank you to you for, you know, uh, giving them such great entertainment and memories over the years. And you've touched certainly millions of players, including myself and and so careful um, how you phrase that. Probably, uh, <laughs> that is true. That is true. People don't know our history. Warren. Yes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Usually we I have like these problems guy. when Alex is on here. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. This is why he's not invited to this. Uh, interview. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so on our podcast, we have a segment called five ridiculously interesting facts. So what would you say is a ridiculously interesting or maybe a lesser known fact about Qbert? Um, Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I, you know, when I think of Qbert, I just feel like everybody knows everything about Qbert. But uh, one I would say is that there was a Qbert pinball machine. Oh, cool. I don't know that a lot of people know about that. Um, it would have had a pinball knocker in it, I would guess, right? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I would guess, I would bet <laughs> that it does. Uh, called Qbert's Quest. So okay. that's that's one thing. Um, I'm trying to think. Wow. Uh, I don't. I'm. I don't. Uh, I'm always surprised because I've talked about it for years, but I think some people still don't know that there was a follow up to Qbert called Faster, Harder, More Challenging Qbert, mm. um, which is personally my Qbert of choice. It's the one that I prefer because mm. it was made in response to getting reports back that 
people were playing Cubert for hours and hours and hours on a single quarter. So, uh, you know, I I was like, oh my, that's bad. That's bad. (laughs) So uh, we made a second one, but it it never got officially released and it got unofficially released to MAME in the 90s. And that story is also in the book. Um, But uh, then um, let's see. um, What's another fact about Cubert? Oh, uh, I can probably say that uh, Jeff Lee hates when Cubert is drawn with arms. Oh. <laughs> he doesn't have <laughs> arms. And he's not supposed to have arms. And I totally with Jeff on this. Oh, like in some of the uh, cartoon adaptations or such you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Liberties yeah. with the design? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, let's see. What, I don't, are any of these... Arms. He doesn't, you're right. Are any of these... Do, are any of these satisfying the criteria? Yes, of the yes. We're, I think we're good. It's ridiculously <laughs> interesting. I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for one more. I think it was because I need to come up with five for our next episode <laughs> on Cubert. Right. So I'm hoping you do my work for me. Uh, you know that those are very interesting. I will tell you one thing. I, one interesting fact I took away from the book, which was the fact that that Cubert's nose was originally going to shoot something. Is that right? That was like the, one of the early discussions or designs. This is, uh, well, this is one of the. Uh, the the uh, uh the lore the, the that gets passed down uh i read it a lot it's not entirely accurate but it's not entirely false so uh jeff lee who created all the graphics genius of an artist fantastic person uh my collaborator all throughout this cubic process uh was uh you know he had the idea, I believe, when he designed the character. Because like I said earlier, he designed the character before I used him for this particular game. But I think it was his idea that he this character would shoot out of his nose. And mm-hmm. I think that's a brilliant idea. Unfortunately, it didn't really work in the context of the game that I was trying to make for, I would say, two reasons. One is the, the sort of the 3D, uh, pseudo 3D nature. Because, you know, mm-hmm. your nose, the nose is pointing in different directions and like, where is it really going when you're shooting? And the physics of it just seemed like it would be very, very difficult. The collision detection would have been difficult. And this was my first game. I was not looking to make it more complicated than it needed right. to be. I was really trying to make it as easy as it could possibly be. Uh, easy to program, I should say, not easy to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so I, I just kind of nixed that idea out of the gate. Uh, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, I thought it was hysterical. Uh, I thought the name Snots and Boogers was hysterical, but uh, I never actually considered it as as the game was being developed. Snots and Boogers was almost a title of the game? or Well, I think it was a joke title yeah. that yeah. Jeff thought of, and, and, and maybe he was serious, you know? Uh, I always thought... Yeah, that might have been something to talk about. I always thought it was a joke, <laughs> and I thought it was a good joke, but I, it go. was not... For, in my mind, it was not something, you know... And, it, you know, since I nixed the shoot... If, if the shooting was in there, I would have considered it, but... Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. So I know Dustin wants to ask you a couple questions, but before I let him do that, I'm curious, how good of a Qbert player are you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, you know, I'd say I'm a little, you know, average to below average, probably. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I went to, uh, I went to it's a so show great. a couple of years ago, Let's Play in, uh, in Dallas or outside of Dallas. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the, one of the events was having me play the winner of a Cubert competition. So, so, so basically they had all these people playing a Cubert competition and then whoever won that competition, who's clearly a good Cubert player, <laughs> right. played me. 
<laughs> so it was no contest whatsoever. Right. No <laughs> contest. Oh. All right. And you have that, that faster, uh, was a harder, faster, more challenging Qbert. You have a, one of those at home? Yes, in right? fact. So I, you know, I have one of the engineering samples is what they gave to me. And it's, I, I put those ROMs in there uh, of, the, of the faster, harder, more challenging version. And that's all that was in there for years and years and years. And the only time I would ever switch it out is if I had maybe a guest come over who was like, this is too hard. I want to play the real Qbert. <laughs> then I would put the, the regular ROMs back in. All right. But people have been actually very uh, enterprising, I've noticed. And a lot of people have put uh, switches where you can switch between regular Qbert, faster, harder, more challenging, and also Qbert's cubes because they all use the same hardware. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of cool. That's cool. All right, Warren, yeah. uh, I'm going to take us away from Qbert for a bit here and touch on a few other contributions you've made to video game history. Uh, uh, first off, I want to ask you about this uh, Laserdisc game that you programmed in 1984 called Us Versus Them. Uh, now, this was a revolutionary game at the time. I, I, I honestly have truly never seen anything like this. I've watched I watched some video of it. It's, it's nutty. Uh, <laughs> the game uh, superimposes traditional video game graphics over real aerial photography. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about the game and what it was like to program for, for Laserdisc? Yeah. Well, you know, I, this, uh, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I wrote the book because yeah. the, you know, all, I've just put all of the stories into the book and, and uh, I also have a lot of photos, which you may remember from the book. If you saw it, uh, I have a lot of, I took a lot of photos on one of those aerial flights uh, and uh, it, it I, it's hard to describe. It was uh, an incredible experience, probably the most satisfying video game experience of my career. Hmm. Um, Dennis Nordman came to me. Dennis Nordman, uh, you may know him as a very, very legendary pinball designer, uh, but at the, he was actually hired at Gottlieb just to design games. He wasn't a programmer or an artist. And that was a very unusual thing for Gottlieb because at Gottlieb, generally the programmers were the designers. Uh, and they would be paired with an artist and a sound designer to make a game. But Dennis was hired to just come up with ideas. So he had this idea for this B-movie uh, concept, science fiction B-movie, alien invasion. Yeah. Uh, and I was all over that. I mean, I'm, I'm a sci-fi <laughs> geek and a lover of, uh, you know, all things sci-fi. So... Uh, I was very excited. Uh, and of course, we had the, video, the uh, laser disc technology at the time. Uh, the company wanted something that could go into a Mach 3 a cabinet as a kit. So that when Mach 3 uh, collections would start to wane, there would be some other game that could go into that same cabinet. It's cheaper mm. for the operators, et cetera. Right. So uh, we were just real excited. And, and, and we you know, hashed out this idea of how do you incorporate an actual story with actors and sets into a video game. Uh, it's something we talked about a lot. It's something, you know, that was a, a challenge uh, that I'm very proud of, of the, you know, the way we sort of figured it out. And um, yeah. we went on, <laughs> we went on one flying de expedition. Dennis and I went, flew to California to basically show, we hired these producer guys uh, and we needed to show them what we needed. And we went up in a Learjet, uh, it, you know, with a camera in the belly and a camera in the nose. And we shot footage out of this airplane uh, and showed these guys kind of what we needed, how we needed it shot. Um, 
And we were sort of figuring it out on our own. Yeah. And then they went off to all these other locations and shot footage, uh, you know, in San Francisco or Hawaii. In there. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it was just a crazy experience. I mean, I'm just amazed that we were allowed to do it. I don't, you know, I, I know Gottlieb was sort of uh, flush with cash because Kubert was successful and uh, Mach 3 was successful. So, uh, I don't know how much this cost. I, I had nothing to do with the budget or anything right. like that. It's like whatever we needed, we got. Uh, I did all of the editing of the laser disc. Every frame of that laser disc was me. Uh, you know, probably staying up all night to yeah. to do to do some editing and uh, uh, working out the multiple scenes because uh, every time you play the game, you won't get the same scenes. You might get a slightly different scene. Mm -hmm. Or you might get a slightly different background. There was a certain amount of randomness built in. And so balancing that, uh, writing the script was a blast. You know, going, we, we hired a company to, to you know, uh, put a, build a set. And, and I was at all of the, um, what do you call it, uh, shoots with the actors. Um, it, it was a blast. It was an yeah. absolute blast. You talk earlier about it being kind of the the B movie like sci-fi uh, uh, feel, and absolutely. I mean, I'm watching this game going, it's kind of cheesy, but in a good way. Uh, there's a <laughs> blink and you'll miss it reference to American Gothic suddenly in the middle of it. <laughs> right. uh, it was just, it's just, it was a fun game to check out. I I, I just had to ask you about it because Laserdisc didn't last as long as some of the other eras of arcade but there's some interesting gems in that era for sure well yeah and they so the you know, probably the biggest regret of my career is the timing of that game was just so bad because mm. the game was done and um the laser disc uh, uh industry just fell apart because yeah. the laser discs weren't ready for arcades they weren't they really were not ready for prime time when it comes to living in an arcade taking the abuse right. that they would need to take and uh the industry didn't find that out until just like before or as us versus them was being released. Oh yeah. yeah. So uh, it, it was a real mess. Uh, a lot of the people who placed the orders for us versus them canceled their orders mm -hmm. and there was lawsuits and it was, it was very ugly and disappointing it, when it was on test. Um, it was like number one for like 12 straight weeks. It was just, it really tested through the roof and we were all just like, okay, this is our next big hit. This is going to be great. Yeah. And then, and then just the bottom fell out. So it was very, very disappointing. I can see how if, you know, timing hadn't been worse that this could have been a hit. It's a, it's a super interesting game and it, and it, and it, and it has a good balance, I think between action and the kind of movie parts and everything. I think it was a good, it's a good example of what Laserdisc was possible if they had solved the tech issues where you can't actually touch the machines. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, there is now like a little board. I think it's called the Dexter board. Okay. And you can plug in a thumb drive with the movie files. And basically it, it replaces the Laserdisc player out of oh, a, cool. a game. Uh, it's, a, it's fantastic. I've seen them in action. I've seen uh, uh, actual, you know, arcade cabinets with us versus them running off of this tiny little board that is plugging into the interface for the uh, Laserdisc player. 
I love hearing stuff like that. I love I love when we hear get to hear, uh, you know, let's bring uh, some technology that was very niche, if you will, uh, worked only a certain way, and we can and somebody spent the time to try to replicate that. I know they're working right now, like uh, how to make light guns work on LCD TVs, right? Because that's this mm-hmm. thing that we've talked about in the podcast. So they only work on CRTs, and somebody's figuring yeah. that out. I love that. It's just it's great that we you know to continue this this kind of uh, passion, if yeah. you will. More people get to play it at that point, right? It's actually it actually lasts more than a few minutes in an arcade. Yeah, right? well, and that's the so. thing too is you know again us versus them. I always thought was you know a, you know dead and gone, and yet uh, I would still find ones with laser disc players in uh, you know arcade museums and things like that. There was one out in a Fun Spot in New Hampshire. Hmm. Uh, periodically, you find them. I went up to uh, California Exchange uh, and. Uh, or Ca- California Extreme. Extreme. Yep. Thank you. So I don't know where I got exchange from. But ca- so I went to California Extreme one year, and uh, that year, like all of the owners, uh, all of the Laserdisc game collectors were there. Oh, cool. And so they had a, an us versus them with them. Um, so they're, it's just great. Uh, it's very rewarding, and, and uh, you know, feels good that people are collecting them. Yeah. And now, because of this new technology, a lot of those cabinets can be repurposed and, and go back to their original use and people can play us versus them. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Talking about technology, your career has not only focused on making games, but also using technology to push the art of making games uh, a little bit further. A uh, prime example is that digitization technology, uh, which had allowed games like Mortal Kombat to scan real actors and bring, bring them into the video game world. Uh, what was your involvement uh, in, in bringing and advancing that technology? Yeah, so that that uh, I mean that is that's pretty much my contribution, to, uh, you know, to uh, Williams. Uh, I uh, I worked on a few games while I was there as well. But uh, my the thing again I'm most proud of there is developing this digitization uh, technology. We um, when we knew there was a point where uh, I was working on Joust two, and um, Eugene Jarvis had left the company and he was about to come back. And we knew we were going to go to a 256 color system. We knew that that was the next leap forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've been working with 16 colors total in a game, having 256 is fantastic. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, feels yeah. limitless. Uh, and the other thing about it is <clears throat> you could approach photorealism. You couldn't get there really, but it got much closer to it. Uh, You just had to be very judicious in the way you selected and managed your colors. So I was fascinated by that and wanted to work on tools to help with that. And so that's kind of where it started. And then I found out about these digitizers. There was one for the Amiga was the first one I played with. Uh, Pretty crude. You couldn't have anything moving. You could, but if you had a stationary object, you would uh, run it through a color wheel, so it would be filtered red, green, blue, and clear, and then the software would assemble, uh, and you, you obviously through a video camera, and then uh, the uh, software would assemble that into a true color image. And then it was, you usually had uh, 24 bits of color. Well, we, we only could handle... Uh, 16 bits of color, 15 bits of color. Mm. So you had to reduce it somehow and you had to pick the best colors. And then I dug through technical journals to find the best algorithms, you know, and I was looking at cutting edge algorithms and coding them up and seeing what I could do. So it's, you know, just really a lot of uh, trial and error, a lot of um, just engineering work 
uh, eventually we did have a 256 color system. And so we used uh, the software that I created to digitize actors, but the, we, because we couldn't really have moving actors because the software was not functional <laughs> in real time. We had to uh, use videotape. So we'd videotape moves and then we would freeze frame every frame we wanted and then grab that frame. Yeah. And then the artist had a lot of cleaning up to do. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> uh, over the years, the system, you know, became more advanced. The, the off-the-shelf hardware became better. Uh, computers got faster. Software got faster. So, you know, uh, everything kind of improved. Our own video hardware uh, became better. Uh, we, we went from one palette of 256 colors for the entire game. At one point, we, our, our newer hardware had multiple palettes. So we might have 16 palettes for the entire game. Then we could assign an entire 256 color palette to one character. Okay. Get much yeah. better color resolution. Yeah. Anyway, you know, but it was a progressive thing. And I don't even know if most people playing the games would even know about that or care about that. Um, the only other thing I'll say is there, there was a period where I left Williams and came back. And I came back like two, two or three years after I left. And I thought, oh, somebody must have picked up the mantle here and, and is, you know, improve, has improved my you know, digitizing system. And I came back to find out that nobody had. <laughs> so even though there were, you know, there were, it should have been way better than it was, but, you know, nobody, they were just using what they had. So I took it upon myself to make the next generation. And that's where we introduced things like chroma key. Mm. So, you know, it was a little bit easier to strip out backgrounds and things like that. But yeah. um, as far as I know, yeah, I, I was the only person who wrote that software and, and continued to evolve it. Although, you know, people like Jack Hager, uh, he did everything as far as creating our uh, blue screen studio. Cause we actually right. had a chroma key studio at Williams. Um, and that's where we eventually start, you know, shot all of our characters. No, there you go. As a game player, it definitely, those games really stood out. I'll say that felt like a leap. You know, I remember that I was telling Dustin yesterday, we were, we were chatting, getting ready for this interview. I was saying, you know, I remember, you know, playing Street Fighter 2 every morning in the arcade and then one day seeing Mortal Kombat. And it was like, oh my God, this is, now I'm playing a movie. I go from playing a cartoon to playing a movie or seeing NARC and seeing the realistic blood and exploding people, you know, or Terminator 2 and like seeing again, the movie and playing the movie. I mean, that, that was definitely a leap and it was, it was that next level. And it was just, um, it brought so much more excitement to these games that were, you know, much more primitive until that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were, you know, uh, there were a few digitized games before Mortal Kombat. Uh, but I think one of the things that uh, Ed Boon and John Tobias did uh, that was so smart was to make their characters big, you know, mm -hmm. just in pixel size there, they were so big that you had just much more detail and you could, uh, you could see the actors more clearly. Yeah. You can see that bleeding, beating heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, another benefit of your work is you got to work with rock legends, Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. uh, now the band might conjure up different feelings or memories for our listening listeners, uh, depending on your age, you know, seventies Aerosmith <laughs> versus nineties Aerosmith. Uh, but no matter what, one thing Aerosmith did a lot was they attempted to in innovate that not just in music, but in games and other media formats, they were in a roller coaster. They were always kind of pushing the edge <laughs> on things. So what was that experience like? Uh, working with Aerosmith on a uh, revolution X. Uh, I, I was just, you know, floored that we got them 
and they literally were there. They came and they, you know, they did everything that was asked of them. They were so game. They were so up for it. Um, so Revolution X was led by George Petro and Jack Hager. They were the leads. Uh, it was pretty much the same team from Terminator 2. Okay. Uh, so uh, we all worked together well. We all you know, knew what was expected of us. But George and Jack were the leaders of that project. They came up with the scripts. They you know, did 99% of the game design. They, um, they you know, were in charge of Aerosmith. Uh, I was the clapboard guy on the days they were there. So we were shooting in our studio. I was the guy, you know, held the clapboard. And, yeah. Uh, that was my role. But uh, uh, all of us on the team had some role to do something to help out because, you know, we were not really a movie crew, but we were acting like one. There you um, go. And Hey, Steven Tyler, action. Come on, man. <laughs> Listen, those guys were, I mean, just to watch them do their thing on camera was astonishing. It was, yeah. uh, it was, it was amazing. And they, like I said, they were totally, totally game for anything that was asked. That's so great. Let's move on to uh, your career nowadays. Are you currently working on any new projects? Something our listeners <laughs> should know about? Other than trying to get that book published in <laughs> <laughs> the movie uh, trilogy. There, there's, there's probably nothing really to talk about right now that I'm working on. Uh, I, I have kept my fingers in the game industry uh, over the years and I've, I've worked on a variety of product projects. Uh, the, the book sort of ends at, at the end of my arcade game days, but uh, I talk a little bit about Disney at the end of it because uh, I work for Disney when I first moved to California. And then I, I did work in the home industry for a number of years and I kind of moved out of the games industry for a while. But lately I've been dabbling back in doing mm. some consulting work, uh, you know, nothing really to promote or talk about, but yeah. uh, no you know, like the, plans for unfinished games or other projects like that. There's no, a game bunny bondage you, you mentioned in your book. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, honestly, you know, I, I, I <laughs> I, I had never really considered uh, picking that up again, but uh, the more people talk about it, the more I, I think, well, maybe. Dude. Who wouldn't want to play a game called Bunny Bunny? Come on. <laughs> it you know, sells itself the, right there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing really to talk about right now. Uh, yeah. Besides being on this podcast, uh, any other ways you've stayed connected to the retro gaming community? I know you've attended some shows in the past, but you know a little little bit more tougher in these times. Uh, other ways you might be uh, staying connected? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, hmm. and uh, you know, always happy to connect with people on Twitter. I also I have a uh, Facebook page. Um, a lot of people, I, I get a lot of uh, friend requests, but I have to say, I don't. I don't uh, friend people on my personal Facebook page, but I have a professional, I don't know what you'd call it. I have like a, just a, a separate Facebook page, right. but it's still just my name. But uh, I, you know, people are welcome to try to find that and, and just like it. And I think uh, just by liking it, you get, yeah, I'm I, you know, honestly, social media is a, it's a weird, a weird thing for me. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I love to meet people and talk to people, but doing it, you know, virtually like without seeing anybody yeah i, I just find that uh it's, it's just strange I, i'm old <laughs> let's face it i'm an old guy I, like, what is that what yeah. is it <laughs> but no, I, I, yeah i'm not I, I i'm not uh i'm i'm not 
you know, I'm with you a little bit. It, it, I like social media, but I would much prefer like, let's go, let's go grab a beer. Let's go, you know, hit the arcade or something. And let's <laughs> that would chat. be nice right and now. Totally. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, so, and then that's why I, I love going to retro gaming shows. It's uh, just such a joy to connect yeah. with people. Yeah, totally. You've uh, said during your time at Williams that everyone was motivated by the desire to make something cool. Uh, when you look back at your career, uh, maybe if something you've talked about already today or something else uh, uh, from your history, what do you consider to be the coolest thing that you made? I, I honestly, I would have to say uh, us versus them. Yeah. 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 I, I just, it, it really was revolutionary for its time. And uh, I, it was just, I was really, really jazzed to work on it. I, I also didn't mention, but I, when I was in high school, my two career paths uh, were uh, going to be either computers or filmmaking. So I, I always, you know, I made films when I was a teenager. I always liked the idea of being a filmmaker. Uh, it's ironic that I became an actor as well as a video game designer because I had no desire to be an actor uh, until college. And even then, I, you know, I, I just never could see it as a, a career, but it just was so much fun. I really enjoyed doing it. And then as I became better at it and all my friends in Chicago were sort of working their way up the acting chain. I just sort of was drifting along with them and just doing it more and more. But uh, filmmaking was something I always really felt comfortable doing and wanting to do. And uh, us versus them gave me a, a huge opportunity to, to, uh, to sort of be one sort of. <laughs> I really want to play this thing now. Like I'm really like, it. so I yeah. got to, Book a trip to Illinois to there's one in Galloping Ghost Arcade, I believe, Warren Ray. I can get my hands on it. <laughs> yeah, so, I think so. Yeah. The travel's a little tough right now. Also, but. there's I think you can play it on your PC. There's a, a, a thing called the Daphne Project. Okay. And uh, they have been doing emulators for Laserdisc games. So I do believe you can find that online and download it and and play it on your PC. Cool. Yeah, Check really, it out. Really cool. So uh, Warren, ahead of this interview, we collected some questions from our audience and wanted to run a few of those by you real quick. That's okay. Sure. Um, so at Basic Gamer Bob asks, and you talked a little bit about this already, but he he asks, I need to hear the story on what on what Cubert is saying. Is is he swearing? Why? And also, how did they come up with that crazy name and spelling? Hmm. Well, so what he's actually saying is. Damn you, basic gamer Bob! <laughs> but it's speeded up so fast that you can't you can't hear. No, <laughs> totally, totally, totally joking there, Bob. Uh, no, so uh, the 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 game our hardware had a, a soundboard on it. Uh, it was the same as our pinball soundboard, and it had a Votrax chip on it, which is supposed to synthesize human speech. But the sound designer Dave Thiel, uh, who came up with uh, you know all the sounds for Cubert. Uh, he hated this chip. It was, he just found it very hard to work with and it just created sounds that just did not sound human. Uh, he had, he had a hard time getting it to say certain things. It would just, certain things that would never sound right. Uh, anyway, so his basic, uh, idea for Cubert was rather than try to string phonemes into something intelligible, let me just throw a bunch of random numbers <laughs> at the speech chip. <laughs> so he's just saying random phonemes, you know, and it's gibberish. Oh, and God. that is literally what he's saying. Now, a lot of people say, well, I swear I heard him say such and such. And, you know, maybe he did. 
because if you randomly put phonemes together, you might randomly put two yeah, phonemes together that make a swear yeah. word. It's, it's, it's not impossible. <laughs> there you yeah. go. And then what, what was it? Was there another uh, part to how that? How did they come up with this, that crazy name and spelling? I think he means actually Qbert, the name Qbert. Uh, okay, so the Q, actually I didn't tell that, but uh, the, the name came out of a meeting we had, uh, a two, at least a two hour meeting. We had to name this game. Obviously it wasn't gonna be the cartoon balloon. What are we gonna name it? And uh, I had tried to poll the people in the office to get ideas, because I really didn't have an idea. I, I called it the cubes game for the entire development. It was just the cubes game. So none of the names that anybody came up with in the office sounded good to me. So we had a meeting. Uh, it went on and on and on and people talked and talked and talked and we couldn't come up with anything. At the very end of the meeting, I think we were all very exhausted. Uh, somebody wrote down on the board, well, what about Hubert? And they wrote down H-U-B-E-R-T. Why Hubert, we said. And they said, well, and he said, I think this was Rich Tracy, by the way, as our art director. Uh, why, why Hubert? And he says, well, it's a, it's a cute name. It's a cute character. It's a cute name. He looks like a Hubert, right? And then somebody else went up and they said, well, what about this? And they changed the H to a C. So now it said Cubert. And the word cube was in there. And everybody's like, hmm, oh, yeah, like we might be onto something here. And then somebody raced the, C-U and replaced it with a Q. And they were like, Q-Bird. And like, we're frothing at the mouths now. We're like, wow, we got something. We got something. And I think they put a the uh, Q dash. And then Jeff Lee went up and changed the dash to an asterisk. And then we all leaped out of our chairs <laughs> and had an epiphany. Um, it was not it was that the locker dramatic. room after the World Series. You know, just everybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then we all went to Disneyland. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, but that that was really, it really was a, an amazing, weird energy. But we all just were like, yes, we. Uh, everybody in that room was like, yeah, I think That's we got awesome. it. That cool. is awesome. That is a um, iterative process if I've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think the, the moral there is just get exhausted before you make any creative decision. There you just go. Exhaust the hell. I've read that Stanley Kubrick used to do that with just, his actors. You know, he'd, he'd do a hundred takes so that they were so exhausted mm -hmm. that he'd finally get the so take. Why, why is this podcast mm -hmm. not very good, Dustin? Because we're exhausted all the time and it seems like we can <laughs> put your words together. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, at jcast6502 asks, so NARC makes an appearance in the T2 movie. I wonder if there's a story behind that. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, if there is, I am not aware of it. Uh, th that would have happened during my hiatus. I had left Williams and then I came back in the middle of T2 because one of the team members quit in the middle of T2 and they needed somebody to come in who could pick it up pretty quickly. So that was me. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the, like, you know, the, a lot of the design work had already been done and uh, George and Jack, who were the leaders of that project uh, had already met with uh, James Cameron and they had already gotten all their footage from uh, Hollywood. So uh, I don't know if there is a connection there and that if I know that uh, when George and Jack met with James Cameron, he loved the digitizing mm -hmm. technology. He loved our games because of that realistic look. He was, 
he was jazzed about that. And I think I'm going to venture a guess then if he, if he was, if James Cameron was coming into the office, it was just that he played around with NARC and decided to throw it. In, he in was the not in the office. He was not oh, in the I office. Thought, okay. I believe George and Jack had to go out to mm. California. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's cool. Anyway, yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure, but it's very possible. That well, and it's a wild game too, so that makes sense that that game would be in that movie, right? Because it's just kind of over the right, top game. So. Right. <laughs> um, so at Guillermo Salva one asks, what was the decision making process for the final controls of the game? I love Qbert, but every time I revisit it, there's a steep learning curve for a, the direction I should push. Well, let's see. I I feel for you, Guillermo but uh, I, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, <laughs> there really was not any sort of decision-making process. Uh, it was utterly, utterly obvious to me that the joystick had to be at a 45-degree angle. It's just the way the play field is designed. So if you accept this sort of 3D pyramid as a play field, if you look at where Kubert stands, he literally has four directions that he can move and they are diagonal mm-hmm. right? if you look at the screen. So there really was no decision-making process. It was just, just utterly obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not realize it was going to throw so many people for a loop. Uh, it utterly shocked me that people were thrown by that. It just mm-hmm. seemed so obvious to and me. And maybe it is that Guillermo hasn't played Qbert, like proper Qbert on a, a proper arcade machine too. Because I guess if you, if you don't play it with a 45-degree turned control, you're going to have a different experience, oh. I guess. Yes, right. If you're playing it on your home system or something, uh, yeah. No, you need a four-way joystick. That's really the ideal way to play. So, Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So that's the extent of our listener questions. I'm sure they'll all appreciate that. I did think of one question that we hadn't talked about because we were on the subject of movies for a minute there is, um, you know, Kubert's been in some recent movies, right? So we saw, you know, Wreck-It Ralph. Um, it was a Pixels most recently. Um, what was it like, you know, seeing Kubert and continuing to see Kubert pop up in, you know, current media for you? Uh, you know, it's, it was very rewarding. Uh, it, it was a little surprising because, uh, you know, basically Kubert, you know, has sort of been forgotten. Um, my experience is that, you know, when I'm, when I am out and about in my life and Kubert comes up, which is very infrequently, but if it does, uh, you know, a lot of times people are like, what's Kubert, you know, who's Kubert, you know, they don't, mm, they don't you. know. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, I'm not insulted. I'm not insulted. It's it's an old game, but uh, I, I, you know. And then it could be just as likely that they go, "Oh wow, that's cool." Uh, and then it might be equally likely that they go, "Oh my God, Kubert!" You know? <laughs> so it does have its fans, and that's very rewarding. So, uh, but but when it was on, when it was in Wreck It Ralph, uh, yeah, it was a little wild. It was a little surreal. I have to say, uh, you know, they they uh, didn't ask me to do the voice or anything they didn't they didn't didn't have me anyway i'm I'm only joking i would not have expected to do that but um i do have a little story where i was at a show boy i wish i could remember which show it was what year did wreck it ralph come out um 2012 yeah i think I, i was at cge in las vegas in 2012 and they had the Fixit Felix arcade game there, mm. which was playable. And they were giving away Wreck It Ralph shirts. And I, I and but you had to like play the game and win. There was a contest. And I, I went up and I tried to schmooze a free t-shirt by dropping the Qbert card. I was like, <laughs> well, you know, I'm having the designer and programmer of Qbert. Uh, and they were like, Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I just, you know, thought maybe I'd get a shirt. <laughs> They're like, 
Uh, eh. Oh, all right. Yeah. So they did. They did give me a shirt, but um, I do not play the cupid card very often. There you go. There you go. I love it. I love it. All right, Ward. Well, we know we got to wrap things up. Uh, we could talk to you all night here, but uh, um, you know, Dustin's tired and he's got to get to bed early. So, uh, but <laughs> right. he's, had, he's had a long day. Just look <laughs> at him. Uh, but but uh, before we let you go, we'd love to play a quick game with you. We like to call this game the hot seat. And we Ooh. so we're going to ask you to pick between two things and you're just going to give a rapid fire answer. So don't, don't overthink it. Um, let's just have some fun. All right, Warren, you down for this game here? I am. I don't know how fast I can think of anything, though. I'll try. All right. All right. Well, it's certainly going to be probably faster than us. So uh, here we go. First one here. Pong or Pac-Man? Uh, Pac-Man. All right. Yeah. 70s Aerosmith or 90s Aerosmith? 70s. There you go. Good. That's the right answer right there. L.A. traffic or Chicago winters? L.A. traffic. I live in L.A. and I got to tell you, the last time I went to Chicago, the traffic was worse in Chicago than it was in L.A. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right. So I'll take the uh, L.A. traffic. Star Wars or Star Trek? Mm, that's a tough one, but I'll go Star Trek. Really? Wow. I, I thought Disney would uh, skew you in the Star Wars direction. But, all right well, when, when I worked for Disney, they did not own. That's true. Ah, although, true. And, and listen, I worked for ILM, so uh, you would <laughs> so, think that. But yeah. I was a Trekkie. Uh, I am old enough to have watched the original series when it was first run. <laughs> and uh, I right. went to, as a teenager... I went to one of the first Star Trek conventions ever in oh, New York wow. City. I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, the Americana Hotel in uh, downtown Manhattan was the host to the first, at least the first two, I think. The first one, I think, was 1972. I went to the one in 1973 and the one in 1974. Wow. There you go. Amazing. You amazing, amazing. Well, because you live in LA, uh, the next one is Del Taco, drive through or drive on by? Uh, drive through, if you mean like literally breaking through the walls <laughs> and driving out the other side. Yeah. Or that, I mean, it's LA. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise anybody, probably. <laughs> so. No, I'm not. I, I would drive around. I'm not a Del Taco fan. Not a Del Taco fan. All right. There you go. And for our last question here, because we just covered the, uh, the game Kung Fu for the NES, uh, Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee? Hmm. I'm going to go Jackie Chan. All, All right. right. Uh, I, I've seen him in person a couple of times, uh, and, uh, I, I just admire the hell out of that guy. I, I admire blue. I admire Bruce Lee too, but I've never gotten to see him in person. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, Warren, thanks for hey, joining wait, wait, us today. Wait, before you go. Yeah. I just want to, can I plug one more thing? Absolutely. I was uh, going to give you a sec to plug it, but you could plug wherever you want. Yeah. So, plug away. <laughs> uh, one of my former colleagues at Midway's name is Josh Swee, uh, has, directed a documentary about Williams Valley Midway. Okay. It's called Insert Coin. Uh, hmm. It's getting fantastic reviews. It is, obviously, theaters are closed in a lot of places, but it is showing, it's screening in some uh, indie movie theaters around the country, and it is available uh, to screen online. I know the uh, Alamo Draft House uh, is, is sort of a partner. Uh, you could see it through their portal. But uh, if you love retro gaming and you want to hear the story of Williams, uh, I pop in there uh, very briefly, but really, it's really about the games and, and the personalities like Eugene Jarvis and Mark Trammell, uh, John Tobias. Uh, they talk about all of, the, all of the Williams games, and 
it's really amazingly put together. So yeah, if you have an, uh, an interest in that sort of thing, I suggest you check it out. That sounds great. Well, absolutely. You know. I'll check that out. Insert coin. You said, right? Insert coin. I'll check it out. Well, Warren, thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure for both of us to have you on the podcast. I hope you had a good Same time here. as well. Awesome. I had a fantastic time. Thank you, guys. I appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Well, well we're going to be uh, playing Qbert in our next full episode, so we're going to look forward to getting uh, diving deep into uh, into Qbert as much as we can. Uh, but you know, just don't be too hard on our scores. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it sounds like if you think you're an average player, Zach might be able to get to to your level. I probably won't. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, don't I, don't think of me as an expert by any stretch. <laughs> there you go, uh, Zwarn. Before we do uh, uh, wrap up here, do you have any last words for our audience? Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, always pleased to meet people who love retro games. It's uh, very rewarding. You've touched my heart and uh, made me uh, a very happy man. So thanks. Awesome. That's great, man. So don't forget uh, for our listeners, you can follow Warren on Twitter at Warren Davis 29. Sounds like he has a, a, a two Facebook pages. You want to make sure you choose the, the, the gaming related one. If you want to get that on Facebook, and get that uh, book, get that limited edition book. And now book. <laughs> exactly. Why, why it lasts? <laughs> all right. Stay safe. Happy holidays. All that. All right. Same. You guys take care. All Thank right. You, Warren. Well, that wraps up this very special interview with our new friend, Warren Davis. If you liked this interview, check out our previous episodes for our interviews with former Nintendo of America spokesman and game master Howard Phillips and uh, also Activision co-founder and Pitfall creator David Crane. Thank you for listening and game on. The opinions and views expressed on the Retro Game Guys podcast represent the views of the speaker alone and are not the views of our employers.